And I'm Chris. And this is Eggs and Espionage, the origins of James Bond. Planetary the squeaker, he will start squeaking it because he loves it when people are on the phone. Quality. It's yeah, gonna, it's gonna be a good podcast. <laughs> he gets real. He gets real into that. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, man. What are you drinking? So tall. What is that? It's the smoky Scotch version of tequila. Okay, I didn't know you were onto tequila, man. It's not a very Bond-like drink. No. Well, I'm sure if he found one he likes, he I would tell us all about it. I don't think he's ever. Uh, I don't think he's ever done a tequila. Not in the books, anyway. No, he, he probably. I don't even think he's had like a margarita. Doesn't respect people of Mexican extraction. <laughs> That's not true. He'd find something to respect from them. Just a little background. The book was written in 1954. I read on uh, Wikipedia that it was most likely took place in around 1951, so pretty of the time anyway for when he was writing. Uh, and he wrote most of it in 1952 at his GoldenEye estate in Jamaica. Apparently, as Wikipedia puts it, to uh, distract himself from his nuptials that were forthcoming. So he was gay? <laughs> I don't think that's what they were implying. We're compensating through the course of a pretty successful literary career. Compensating for his his homosexuality? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he lived in a time it wasn't accepted. Like, he probably would hadn't accepted it of himself. It was illegal in, in England at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, that's true. They did, um, they did chemically castrate that, that um, guy who invented the computer. And cracked the Alan Turing, German. yeah. Alan Turing, yeah. He didn't invent the computer, but uh, he, he, invented he, the he cracked the Enigma code for the Nazis. He By built a computer to... Proto-computer. He, he built a computer. Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> he used a computer. They made a great movie about him and chemically castrated him. <laughs> because he... Shall we dive into chapter one? With with that background, so I think today uh, it would be good just to talk about the first eight chapters, really, because... Um, yeah, so the first first few chapters of the book are a lot of just character background, right? It's the first time we as, as readers are being introduced to pretty much everyone in Bond's world. Right. And it's, it's just pretty amazing stuff. It's not really how they portray him at all in the movies. Um, it's, there's certain degrees of it. And we could talk more about like looks and stuff and what Ian had in mind versus all the different iterations. There's some aspects, but movies definitely take a little bit of a poetic license as to what they want to do with, with Bond and with the stories. Yeah, that's fair. But I mean, I mean, as, the, as it starts, Ian Fleming makes a lot of connection to, to like the spy craft, but it's, it's really not even about the spy craft the way it is in, uh, in any of the movies. Hmm. Where you know gadgets and all this stuff happening, like at least not he, in the first book, yeah. Yeah, he talks a lot about his nerves and like everything seems like it's all about like mindfulness. It's really like very meditative and very like uh, at home at a yoga center, right? 
I mean, actually, I really like that because it really is just like being, just being incredibly present is really the key. And there's so much like sensual detail that comes from him being like, being incredibly present in the in the moment. Well, and Ian Ian Fleming kind of opens right up with that very first sentence, right? The scent and the smoke and sweat of Casino are nauseating at three in the morning. Not that this is going to be a comparison to the movies, but a little bit harder to do in a movie. No, that's true. It's true. But, it, you know, I think that's the, the point that gets missed is in, in the, the whole concept that people have of James Bond. He doesn't seem like a thoughtful or contemplative person. He's, he's a man of action, right? Like he rushes into this and just gets it done, which is not how he's portrayed in the books from the get-go. So chapter one, titled The Secret Agent, where James suddenly knew he was tired, his body or his mind had had enough, and he always acted on the knowledge. This helped him avoid staleness and central bluntness that breeds mistakes. This notion that he always acted on his knowledge um, kind of makes it seem like right, right from the beginning that he's infallible and the man has a perfect thought pattern and his instincts are pure and always right. Mm-hmm. He has luck. His nerves seem good. Um, yeah, he just like he, that first chapter is just him walking around the casino um, and the town in this hotel feeling cocky and idly thinking about everything that's going on and kind of it sets the scene through his perspective without really telling you why he's there except to gamble the highest level and get into some shenanigans and smoke 70 cigarettes a day. <laughs> that is a direct quote from the book. As he's going to bed, he smokes his 70th cigarette of the day. That's um, awesome. They play possible. This- Comparison to Le Chiv, right? So Le Chiv is sort of Bond's uh, nemesis in the book. Um, we'll get into, I think, chapter two gets into more of who Le Chiv is. But I love even like this sort of passive-aggressive, Le Chiv was still playing and still apparently winning. Almost Bond's detest for this man right away, just purely because he, he might be somewhat decent at gambling. Yeah, and he has a slightly Jewish uh, cast to his face. Yeah. To make sure to put that out. Doesn't that be, I think, based on his earlobes, they said, right? Yep, he has Jewish earlobes, yes. so he's good money. It's very Jewish earlobes. That's how you know they're Jewish. A very progressive stance coming post-World War II. <laughs> right, yeah. That's a good point. Um, the other stuff he draws right away, I thought, right from the second page, I highlighted this line to, about, I'm going to mispronounce this French word, but cassier. And he says right away, he's generally nothing more than a minor bank clerk. Putting down, like, just the general blue-collar working person um, in this casino. That's true. But, I mean, Ian Fleming was educated at Eaton, so he um, doesn't really have a connection to the working man in any way. He lived lived a fairly luxurious lifestyle all the way through. It's just like that general, I wouldn't even call it disdain, just that very class sensitivity to here's who we are, here's what you are. And right, right away setting that tone. Um, the other thing that comes up in this book a lot, and again, right on the second page, they kind of make first mention, is this whole notion of luck versus skill. Not just in the gambling, as we see as Bond goes through and nearly gets killed a couple times, like it, it's basically purely by luck that he remains alive at all. Um, That's but, true. But yet yeah, somehow I mean, he still kind of claims it a lot as, as his own personal skill um, well, of a secret agent. listens to his luck. That's like his his whole big thing, but he talks a lot about what luck is. I mean, I guess that's like the life advice is like not to confuse luck with skill. 
um, and know the difference between the two. But he kind of does. Like, even Bond, and we can, as we rifle through, we can find examples of that. But even he will sometimes... I mean, you could argue that what he's considering skill throughout a lot of the book is really just sheer coincidence, happenstance, or, or pure luck. I mean, if you just skip ahead a couple of chapters, but he, a bomb goes off, and basically exactly. he's like he's like watching the whole thing unfold. He like notices the guys like off in the distance. He's like, those guys look shady, and here's the reasons why. And like, I wonder what they're doing. They couldn't possibly kill me though. I'm too smart. And then like. <laughs> A bomb explodes, and the only reason he's not killed is because he happened to be walking in front of a palm tree at the time. He was behind a tree, yeah. It's like the the brunt of the explosion. What just happened? Like, I was so smart. Like, I couldn't possibly have been killed by them. Well, and then I don't want to ruin ruin the plot too soon here if anyone hasn't read the book or seen the movie, but even fast-forwarding all the way to the end, I mean, the whole reason his life was saved is because somebody else happened to slam through the door at, at that moment of crisis. So maybe it's it's really the, the the moral of the story is like you just have to hang on long enough is really the key. Your skill is just enduring the, the utmost pain until something magical happens. Enduring all the, the down of whatever until something magical happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that probably is. Um, so we'll see more of that too as Bond kind of checks himself out saying, hey, I've, I've had enough of the night. Um couple little sidebars into Bond tech. There's not a whole lot going on this early in the book. Uh, relay immediately to Bond, full rates, the text of messages which he received at home by telephone from his anonymous contact. Which I love this notion of him receiving text messages in, in 1951, mm-hmm. which uh, is effectively probably how he'd get his message today, right? Except reading it through the phone versus someone actually calling, writing it down, and then leaving it in his room for him to find later. Yeah, so much of the amazing technology they come up with is now just like totally ubiquitous in our society. Right. But what I think is interesting, and this may this may be the first book, it's certainly the first popular book to talk about what Spycraft was. So some of it's like very real. I mean, just having cover stories, and that you know he carefully crafts this whole like Jamaican cover story. Right. Um, using real details from Jamaica because Ian Fleming that's where he was. It's basically live there. Yeah. Avoiding his marriage. <laughs> By writing effect. three hours a day, yeah. Um, well, here, and probably more so than anywhere else in the book, probably more so than anywhere else in, like, any of his books, right, Bond comes up to his room and goes through just a series of very low-tech safety checks. Yeah, it is so low-tech. To find out if anyone's been in his room or has been messing about. It's basically come in, like, flip the light switch on with your gun out kind of thing. Um, and then he checks all his burglar alarms, like the hair on the door. Right. So he tape puts a little bit of hair on his door, undisturbed where he left it before dinner. Uh, the, yeah. I think you and I both kind of contemplated the, the markings on the lavatory cistern. Yeah, right. As an interesting one. In if someone did break through. into your room and take a shit in your toilet. That's what secret agents were all about back in the day. <laughs> they, they were like, man, we can't find anything, and i got to drop a they deuce would beat here. They each other upper deckers, <laughs> and then they would call. It was much more civilized in a way. I don't know. But he says it on page 7. He says, doing all this, inspecting these minute burglar alarms, did not make him feel foolish or self-conscious. <laughs> he was a secret agent, and still alive oh, thanks to his exact attention to the detail of his profession. Exactly. So right away they start the book with, here's how much skill this guy has, right? No, he doesn't take luck. There is no luck in his professional life. 
It's all about skill. Even as they go to explain his gambling. Like we said before, like hanging on until your luck runs good and then yeah. get out. I think, you know, not to draw a conclusion too soon, but maybe the, the message here is just have a method. Whatever that method is, have it, mm-hmm. stick to it. I know I, I'm a terrible, terrible crap player, but when I play, I try to stick to one method. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should pick a new method because I always seem to lose <laughs> versus win. But I also don't start with a bankroll of like $20 million that uh, Bond was so fortunate enough to start with. And it wasn't even his money. 23 million francs, which I, I Googled was $826,000 by today's standard. Okay. I had less than that in my calculation, but that sounds more likely. Yeah, it was, it was substantial. That's, that's a hefty amount to be given. Well, first of all, how badass is this whole plot, right? The whole... His whole main goal is not about killing anybody. It's like the British government saying, holy crap, there's a scary guy who's gambling, and if he wins enough money, he's going to fund basically Russia's Cold War operations, and they're going to have more money than we're going to have. So we need to find the best gambler possible in the Secret Service. (laughs) Give him a million dollars, and hopefully he wins. (laughs) Yeah, and that's basically the whole second chapter. Is, and it's all told through like these dossiers given to the head of Secret Service, setting up who this bad guy is, the Shiv. The Shiv. Yeah, his whole thing. Like he 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 went he invested heavily in brothels, and France outlawed brothels, and now he's in like mad debt to the Russians, and they're mm. gonna kill him if he doesn't defect. So he needs to make money fast, and the way he's gonna do it is he's gonna buy up the bank. I like that you could buy the bank. You position. could be the bank, yeah could be the bank of the casino, right? If you have enough money, you can go and, like, be the casino. I think that's... Is that exclusive to the game of Backrack, though? I think that's exclusive to yesteryear. I don't think they give up that 1% or whatever the percentage, uh, the odds are, to anyone else anymore. I think they're all well-financed enough. Because I think back then it was They just, must get a fee, though. Money and they let you gamble there. But the hotel was just being a hotel. Now the casinos uh, like, take your money. Um, I didn't like the second chapter, to be honest. I don't think reading... There wasn't a lot there. Very interesting plot way to, to get the plot out. But Yeah, it was just kind of... Uh, I have my summary notes. Basically just background on the Shiv, who he was. Um, it's the first introduction of Smirsh. Anyone who's going to dive into the novels and read them sequentially. It's kind of a, a big when moment. The, the, the Sean Connery movies. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, it was what everyone knew that must be true about Russia, that we all still know must be true about Russia. It's what we all know, like, Vladimir Putin came from. It's like <laughs> secret cult of assassins within the Russian secret service. Uh, so are they, That I guess I never got that, are they actually affiliated with Russia, or are they just Russian by, like, nature? No, they're part of the Russian secret service. They are, sure. okay. Yeah. Um, you're thinking of Spectre which is the International oh. Criminal Organization, another big one. That one kind of goes through all the movies. Gotcha. Um, uh, a couple other things to note. This is the He does all this describing of Lashiv in this chapter. Also, first introduction to M, right? New character, Bond's mm-hmm. boss. Basically, every way they describe Lashiv is, you know, with, quote, gross physical habits or predilections of an Achilles heel... This is where we see kind of hints at uh, anti-Semitism a little bit. Yeah, it's 
it felt pretty clear to me. Yeah, ears small with large lobes indicating some Jewish blood. Hands small, you know, carnies. <laughs> Hirsute, I don't even know what that word means. H-I-R-S-U-T-E. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of I kind of glossed over this chapter. Well, that's that's what you do with most of your life, Ian. It's true. Oh, hairy. It's another so, way to say hairy, according to Merriam-Webster. So he's a small hairy Jew, small hands, small feet too, and is probably a mixture of Mediterranean with Prussian or Polish strains. It's very specific. Dresses well and meticulously, generally in dark double-breasted suits. Smokes incessantly. Corporals or caporals. So what's kind of fascinating here is like it's really not that far from like Bond's thing. I mean, yeah. Bond doesn't use a cigarette holder. That's a little more sinister. Name brand. But I love that that's in the file to M. Like apparently that's so important. <laughs> Detailed Look, to his life. M, you've got a picture before you do any kind of mission against it. You've got a picture how Jewish right. he, he is. That'll he, help you know that you got to go after him. Specific to detail about his wardrobe, his cigarettes, his drink. He is. Next chapter is basically why they chose number 007, which, so this is the first time Bond's identified by his Secret Service number, right? 007. Right. In chapter two, James Bond's not in it. It's his boss and his, like, one of his colleagues who runs, like, a, a section, and then they kind of pull him into the conversation, right. third chapter. The head of S. Uh, it's also our first introduction to Ms. Moneypenny. Mm -hmm. Would have been desirable, but for eyes which were cool and direct and quizzical. Yeah, I love that. It's the first introduction to um, Ian Fleming's sexism and overcoming. Would have sexism. been desirable, but for this one small detail one small about detail. her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> she would have been attractive if, if she didn't talk, if she wasn't so lippy. You know she's thinking her own thoughts in there and not and just agreeing with you blindly. Yeah. The chief of staff turns to M's private secretary and says, what do you think, Money Penny? What do you think, Penny? She would have been desirable. But there was this one thing about her eyes, so don't worry about it. I mean, I think that's why he spent so much time writing. He had a, he had a quizzical but attractive fiancé, and he just couldn't deal with it. And then basically they just go on to talk about how the... The only reason they picked 007 is because he's like the only guy with some experience gambling. Well, he had, yeah, he had done some job um, watching card thieves at like another casino one summer. He had some summer work busting up card cheats. <laughs> and 007 um, turned in a million francs he had won at Shemi. I don't know what Shemi is. Tremendous. Good, good money in those days. They love. They ask him, "What about it, Bond? What do you, you know, What do you think, man?" As if he has a choice, right? Can you say no as a secret agent? Maybe. No, I'm not feeling this one, Em. It seems <laughs> I was going to take a vacation. Don't you think? I could, I could get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure all I have to do is gamble? No one's going to try to blow me up while I'm there? It's very kind of you, sir. I'd like to do it. <laughs> but I can't promise to win. Well, geez, Bond, what are we setting you down for, for if you can't promise yeah. to win? They don't care. It's government money. There is like this weird respect. Uh, it's well, I shouldn't say weird, but Bond shows a respect to M in this chapter. That he doesn't really show anybody else that I can recall in any books. Right? This is Bond wish he had kept quiet about his misgiving. So like he kind of opens up his mouth and M sort of shoots him down, and he like feels a little bit embarrassed about that. Maybe he has a little bit of a father complex. Yeah. Don't know. They don't really don't. specify. 
We know nothing about Bond's childhood. I'm imagining his inner monologue in that moment. You're so stupid, James. God, why did you say that thing about, oh. Play cool. Just play it cool. He's never going to come to my baseball game. <laughs> and then basically they give Bond 25 million, 25 million francs. Pretty badass. Imagine being a driver like, hey, Ian, here's what we need you to do. Take $25 million, mm-hmm. go gamble, and do your best not to lose. Mm-hmm. I lost. <laughs> I lost. <laughs> He got all the money. Cold I'm War's so over. I'm going to retire now. Yeah. <laughs> Don't ask what funds I'm retiring on. <laughs> the only thing I highlighted anyway was the very end of the chapter. A little bit of foreshadowing into the future here. Bond would have preferred to work alone, but one didn't argue with M. Right? So he, he left the room hoping that, quote, the man, right? Little little foreshadow indication there. The mm-hmm. man they sent would be loyal to him. And neither stupid nor were still ambitious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I circled ambitious. It's a good Don't want to go get her. That's all. Do they talk about the how Bond got his double O status in this book? No, he, he mentions it later. He does, he, right? He's super self-depreciatory about it. He's like, you know, there's nothing special about being a double O. Exactly. You have to be willing to kill people. And I killed somebody in somewhere. I, I probably underlined it. It's like one in cold blood. This is where he murdered people. And that's why he's a double O. Which is fascinating, right? Because, again, he comes off with all this, like, skill. He's a trained killer, and yet he's only got two two names. He's basically like a rookie in this book. Yeah, totally. I it's mean, it's the start of his, it's the real start of his career. So he's got a lot of nerves and apparently no ambition. Because that's worse than stupidity. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me you've never worked in an organization where the person running it was the most incompetent person there whose only redeeming quality was that they were like super ambitious. Yeah. So they just pushed and pushed and pushed to get to the top, but they just make an absolute hash of it the whole time because they're just like a fucking moron. Pardon my French. Little yeah. words, words of wisdom there, I guess. Yeah. So I think he's, I think that's what he's talking about. There's also, I love like the weird detail in, in the book too, which again, you just can't get through a movie. Uh, just by pure nature of being a book versus a movie, not necessarily the Bond movies versus the Bond books, but he arrived at the Royal Leu uh, in time for luncheon two days before. It's somehow important that he arrived in time for luncheon. But it is, because the food is always such a big deal. Food and he, is a big he, deal? He tells, he tells the love interest this later. He explains his whole philosophy on it. And it, it's like even here in this chapter where he's like, Bond, Bond liked to make, and I quote, Bond liked to make a good breakfast. Oh, oh, yeah. After a cold shower, he sat at the writing table in front of the window. He looked out at the beautiful day and consumed half a pint of ice orange juice, three yeah. scrambled eggs, and bacon, and a double portion of coffee without sugar. sugar. And then Ooh. it goes into his, smoke. his first cigarette, a Balkan and Turkish mixture made for him by Moreland's of Grovesnor Street. How friggin' awesome is that? I know. Everything is like made specifically to his specifications. And first introduction of what you any reader learns is Bond's favorite meal, right? Scrambled eggs, bacon, and black coffee. Mm-hmm. Comes up over and over again. What is the one, the like 007 in New York, where they actually have the recipe for like Bond's scrambled yeah, eggs? The short story, <laughs> yeah. Which I find that's great. I love that he had. That, to me, that's a huge sense of humor. I think I think the challenge for all of us is to go out into our lives and. Be hyper specific in every instance of 
just dealing with any kind of consumer product at all. Unbelievably, obtusely specific about every detail of what you want. <laughs> hey, you know, we only have so much money, right? All of us get to spend. You know, be incredibly specific about where you spend your time, money, energy. But I'm going to jump ahead to the eighth chapter because he's, he's sitting at dinner with the girl and he's talking about exactly this. And he's just gone through this whole thing where, like, they order the meal and it's, like, a ridiculous, like, thing. And, like, oh. you know, there's even the moment where the maitre d' turns to the sommelier and just repeats what James Bond ordered them for dinner because <laughs> the sommelier is going to be so impressed at, like, this meal. Whatever. <laughs> turns and, but then he's explaining it to her and he's like, and I quote, you must forgive me, he said. I take ridiculous pleasure in what I eat and drink. It comes partly from being a bachelor but mostly from a habit of taking a lot of trouble over details. It's very pernickety and old maidish, really. But when I'm working, I generally have to eat my meals alone, and it makes them more interesting when one takes trouble. It's not, it's not a bad way to go through life, but it does kind of make you a little pretentious at times. That's why I think you have to go in and you just have to be overconfident, even if what you're saying doesn't make sense or you don't actually want that thing. <laughs> if you've learned anything from James Bond, or from Ian Fleming for that matter... You do not think about the other person's feelings at all. Eggs and Espionage is produced by Flashback Productions. Music by Drink to Forget. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Ian, we want to thank you for listening to the first episode of the first season, documenting the first novel of Ian Fleming's James Bond series. We'll be releasing a full season at a time, each one documenting another one of the novels. So check out the next episode where Bond meets Vesper for the first time. We learn a little bit more about James's lifestyle and habits and has his first run-in with near death. Will it be luck or skill that gets him out of this one? Next time on Eggs and Espionage, The Origins of James Bond.